This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by the North Face and its new Ventrix jacket, a go-anywhere layer that adapts to you as you warm up and cool off. Now, it's common knowledge that layering is the key to staying comfortable in the outdoors, but what people don't talk about is that it's also a total drag. A few years ago, I did a 10-day crossing of Yellowstone National Park, and we saw every kind of weather you could think of, practically all at once. If we were standing still, it was too cold for a t-shirt. If we were moving, it was too hot for a jacket. So we were constantly taking off layers and putting them back on. As a group, there would actually be this weird accordion effect, where one person would stop to drop a layer, but then while they were stopped, another person would get cold and add one. It made so that we could effectively walk all morning without going anywhere. But with the all-new Ventrix jacket, it doesn't have to be this way. The Ventrix feels like a puffy down coat when you're cold, but then as you warm up, it has unique perforations and dynamic venting in key areas that expand to dump your body heat. It's also very light and durable, with reinforced fabric in the places that are more likely to wear out. It's not the only coat you'll ever need, but it's the only one that works with you so you stay warm, but not too warm, no matter what. And that means on a climb or a hike or a chilly morning backpacking trip, you're going to spend more time moving and going, and less time stopping to change your clothes. The Ventrix just makes being outside more comfortable, a lot less work, a lot more fun. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview. I'm just going to test your guys' mics. With Chris Katz. If you're doing it right, sleep is boring. If you're not, sleep is the stuff of really sensational headlines. Scientists warn of global sleep crisis, reads one. Here's another one. Sleep crisis is making us sick, fat, and stupid. And it's true. As a society, we're sleeping less and less and suffering for it. But the weird thing is, we're celebrating that fact. These days, being sleep-deprived is a sign of productivity, of importance power. This is a room of sleep-deprived women. Ariana Huffington, who runs the Huffington Post, famously collapsed from sleep deprivation, hitting her head on her desk, breaking her cheekbone, and getting five stitches in her right eye. Only then did she come around on the importance of rest. But the rest of us didn't come with her. And I began the journey of rediscovering the value of sleep. I mean, you can hear the crowd's nervous laughter. Who is this Pollyanna talking about going to bed on time? She just told them about a problem that left her severely injured, and they're treating it like a fortune cookie. The Ariana Huffington fetishizing sleep, if we could eliminate sleep, you'd have a third of your life back. I cannot, I have a very deep... Last month on his podcast, Ezra Klein from Vox interviewed David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and they bonded over how annoying sleep is. It's a ridiculous activity. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous. And yet apparently it's necessary. Necessary, but underappreciated. And it's only recently that we've begun to unlock just how necessary how badly we suffer without sleep, and how our body and mind deceive us and convince us that we're doing fine on five or six hours of sleep, getting used to it, even when we're not. When we started talking about this series on human performance, one of the first things to come up in conversation was the idea of rest and recovery, which led us to the current sleep crisis. And once we were there, we found a man who was devoting his entire professional life to making the argument that sleep is more important than almost anything that gets in its way. So we called him up and had him talk to our most important, 
most sleep-deprived editor, a man at the helm of our whole magazine with two kids and one more on the way, and no idea when he's going to start sleeping again. Here's Chris Kyes. If you want to understand what it means to try to function on little to no sleep, you want to talk to a Navy SEAL who during training go without rest for almost a week. And there's probably no better Navy SEAL to talk with than Dr. Kirk Parsley. SEALs probably the most extreme environment for anyone in the military. We do the most extreme sleep deprivation, so we do a week of, you know, from Sunday, well, I guess you wake up Sunday morning and then you don't get to go to bed, you don't get to go to sleep again until Friday afternoon. So we do a full week of that and, you know, people are hallucinating and falling asleep standing up and falling asleep while running and it's just, I mean, it's amazing. Um, but we're looking for people who break um, and that's part of the selection process. So As a former SEAL, Dr. Parsley spent his early 20s in a constant state of sleep deprivation, both during training and as an active member of his team. It was normal to stay up for 48, even 72 hours, getting ready for a mission or on deployment. He says it was just part of the culture, that sleep was for the weak. It's for lazy people and go-getters, you know, just push sleep aside, just kind of a luxury. And when he left the Navy, catching up on sleep wasn't really an option. He got married and had kids while attending college and working to support his family. He figures he was getting about five hours of sleep a night, and that was before he started training to become a doctor. Um, and then once I got to medical school, it was like five hour was the best night of sleep. Um, and very often it was three and a half hours. And once you get into the you know, wards and start rotating, there's no sleep at all. You know, I still had this SEAL mentality. I was, I was getting up at three in the morning so that I had time to work out before I went to school. Um, which was obviously like the dumbest thing I could have possibly done, but um, I was convinced that that meant I was hard and a go-getter and I did, you know, I deserved what I was seeking and all those other things. That's when Parsley started to notice his own performance issues. Like my reading comprehension went down, my attention span, of course, went down, my cognition went down, my body composition sucked. Parsley eventually made it through medical school, but despite the struggles back then, he still didn't see a lack of sleep as the culprit. He was a former Navy SEAL, he was too tough for sleep to be an issue. And he felt that way for years. But then he returned to the Navy to work as a physician for SEAL teams. And he started noticing a disturbing trend with the men he was seeing. SEALs are a lot like professional athletes in that they do, they do not come clean with healthcare providers because health care providers are the enemy. Those are the guys who can, those are the guys who can bench you, right? They can say, oh, this is a big issue. We need to go evaluate this. You're going to need to take some time out of training or miss your deployment or, you know, that's the worst thing you can do to a SEAL. So they just go in there and lie. I mean, it, it's ridiculous the levels they go to, to, to make themselves look like they don't have any problems. But they trusted me because I was a SEAL. Right. <laughs> I mean, they came in, they shut the door, and they said, hey, here's my, you know, here's what's going on. And they started listing out all these problems. Behind the closed door, dozens of SEALs began telling Parsley an incredibly similar story. They had difficulty focusing and controlling their emotions. They had issues with motivation and sex drive. They were constantly struggling to perform on the job, and while they would train just as hard as they used to, they weren't seeing the same gains. Parsley took detailed notes, but that was about all he could offer. And I honestly didn't have any any answer whatsoever. I just kind of sat there with a dumb blank look on my face as they you know, described all these symptoms to me. And I'm taking notes and I'm just like, Jesus, I don't know. These are some of the toughest men in the world, still in their prime. Yet Parsley says they had testosterone levels of 80-year-old men. And no one knew why. Um, and I originally 
thought that this was um, adrenal fatigue, which was thought to be sort of uh, the same thing as combat fatigue in Vietnam and shell shock in World War II. And Some of the men improved with treatment for adrenal fatigue, but most didn't. And none of the SEALs saw all their symptoms go away. And then it was just one day when I'm sitting in my office and another SEAL is telling me the same story that, you know, a hundred other SEALs have told me at this point. And he says something about his sleep and about using Ambien. And for whatever reason, that particular day, that kind of, you know, was an aha moment for me. And I thought, well, I wonder if, I wonder if Ambien is an issue. I wonder if this sleep issue, you know, sleep stuff is an issue. Let me look back through my charts and notes of every other person who sat in that chair and told me that story. And sure enough, a hundred percent of them were using sleep aids. Um, some of them were using prescription sleep aids. The majority of them were using prescription sleep aids. But um, if if you know SEALs or you know those types of guys, if one is good, two is better, three is great. Um, chase that you know <laughs> chase that down with a little Jack Daniels or something, and you know you'll get some good sleep. These men had been using sleep aids for years, often in combination with alcohol, only to wake up at four the next morning, hit the gym hard, work a full day, hoping they'd feel better the next night. And I say, well, how long have you been trying that? And they're like, you know, five years. I'm like, you know, keep going. It, tonight's probably the night, right? So it seems like it's, <laughs> it's going to eventually work. Um, yeah. So it's probably not going to work at this point. I mean, let's look into something else. So that led me to just going, well, you know, what sleep? This is the moment in the story when Dr. Kirk Parsley became Doc Parsley, the brand name he now uses for his popular website and his signature sleep aid mix of melatonin, magnesium, and L-tryptophan. The question of what is sleep led Parsley to become one of America's leading sleep evangelists. According to him, almost none of us are getting enough sleep. Not only that, it's the single worst thing we can do for our health. I literally do not think there's anything more important to your performance than sleep. And I don't care what, how you measure your performance. I, you know, If you measure your performance by being a great mother or the smartest CEO or the, you know, professional athlete or first responder, law enforcement, it doesn't matter what your performance goals are. Sleep is a huge performance enhancing tool. And, you know, depriving yourself of sleep is literally the dumbest thing you can do. It is the worst move. Uh, Nothing breaks you faster than sleep deprivation. How much sleep we actually need was first studied in the 1960s. In the bunker trials, a series of tests at Germany's Max Planck Institute, more than a dozen subjects spent weeks inside cool, dark rooms with only a bed and a toilet. And yes, these were volunteers. They had no exposure to sunlight, no electricity, no entertainment. And what they found is that the average person, when they start this trial, slept 12 and a half hours when you put them in these dark rooms for 14 hours. And over the course of about four to six weeks... Um, it got to the point where 99% of people were sleeping seven and a half hours plus or minus half an hour. And this number has been repeated over and over and over again. Every time we sleep adapt people, this is where people end up. Um, and so they said, okay, at this point you've paid back your sleep debt. And now we're going to test you on something. They started with something easy and arbitrary, typing with just one hand, for example. And they measured for accuracy and speed. Um, and you do this when people have completely sleep adapted and you call that their baseline. And then that night you take away two hours of sleep from them. So they, now they only get to sleep six hours. And then they come back the next day and they 
do that same skill and you ask them, how do you think you did? And they say, I did worse. I was tired. And sure enough, they're right. Their data shows they did worse. Day two, same thing. Day three, maybe the mm -hmm. same thing. By day four, almost every person would say, I'm completely adapted. I think I did as well as I've ever done. And they show them the data. You're still, you're not only did you do worse than your baseline, you did worse than yesterday. And you've, you've gotten progressively worse every day. And they'll argue with the, with the researchers and say, no, you're wrong. I, I know I did better. I can tell I did better. It's just like trying to convince a drunk person they're drunk. And in fact, being sleep deprived has a lot in common with having too much to drink. Um, when people are sleep deprived, we can, we can measure their performance in any area you want to and then compare that to how people perform as they become progressively more intoxicated. And there's some pretty consistent scales that you can kind of come up with, rules of thumb, that being just being awake for um, 18 hours in a row, um, so if you're sleeping six hours a night, let's say, if you're awake for 18 hours in a row, that 18th hour you're performing as though you have a blood alcohol of about 0 0.05. If you stay up for 24 hours, you're performing as though you have a blood alcohol level of 0 0.08 to 0 0.1, um, which is obviously intoxicated. And you know that's something to think about for shift work and first responders and military and law enforcement. But most people don't go 24 hours in a row without sleeping. Mm -hmm. um, so most people go, well, that you know, that's not me. But there's another set of data. If you just deprive people of two hours of sleep per night and they're sleeping six hours a night instead of eight, and you do that for 11 days in a row, their performance then goes to just as though they haven't slept for 24 hours in a row. If you do it for 22 days in a row, their performance is that of somebody who hasn't slept for 48 hours, which is like a ridiculously intoxicated level. I think it's like 0 .0 or 0.2 or something like that. We wouldn't be okay with a doctor, you know, drinking a little bit of alcohol throughout the day, right? Just saying, well, mm -hmm. I never have more than one shot every two hours. And for a guy my size, that'll never result in the blood alcohol level above 0 0.05. So that's below the legal limit. So you don't have to worry about it. Nobody would accept that behavior. You wouldn't expect, you know, you wouldn't accept it from a doctor, from a pilot, a lawyer, your accountant, anybody. Like, you, you know, like, I want you sharp. I want you on your game. People walk around like this all of the time, but because we're doing it as a culture, because we're doing it in a group and we're comparing ourselves to our peers, we think that when we're 40 years old and we walk out of the kitchen to get something out of our bedroom and we get into our bedroom and we don't have any idea what we went into our bedroom for, it's because we're, it's because we're getting older. Uh, you know, just, oh, it's just a senior moment. I was like, come on, man, you're 40 years old. Like there's no reason to have any cognitive decline at 40. And in fact, you should probably be getting cognitively better till like around 50 plus, maybe even mid to late fifties. You should be getting better at this stuff, not worse. Yeah. This is sounding, this is sounding dangerously familiar. To me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this may give you an idea of the kind of denial we're dealing with when it comes to sleep. A big problem, says Parsley, is that most of us aren't even aware of its benefits. One way to understand it, think of your body as a giant office building. When you leave at night, you may be gone, but the office is still a flurry of activity. A team of janitors is hard at work to make the place clean before you arrive the next morning. And each of them is working a different job, on different floors, and at different hours. The same kinds of things are going on inside your body when you're unconscious at night. Everything from muscle repair to memory cleanup. During a great night of rest, your body is constantly switching in and out of different sleep phases that enable house cleaning. When you're in what's called deep sleep, you're in an anabolic state, which basically means your muscles get repaired. 
When you're in REM, memories get stored and discarded. If you don't get a full night's sleep, it's sort of like the janitors have gone on strike. When you, when you exercise, I think most people know this these days, um, when you exercise, you actually damage your body, right? You actually break down muscle cells. You're also breaking down connective tissue, right? Your tendons and your ligaments, they're being strained as your muscles are contracting. You're, you know, you're taxing your organs, which are, you know, some of those cells are now, you know, essentially burning out or overperforming and they need to recover. And so the anabolic period is when you're, you're fixing all of that. My body, my brain starts telling my, you know, my body and to secrete all of these anabolic hormones like testosterone, like growth hormone, like insulin, like thyroid, all of these things that lead to the repairs of my cells. And then the, and those cells that have damaged that day, then they repair that night. Not only do they go back to their normal state, they come back a little bit better. They're a little bit thicker. They're a little bit stronger. They have a little more protein in them. They have a little more energy production capability. It depends on what I'm training in. And that's happening while you're sleeping and then, and specifically in deep sleep, uh, what we call stages three and four of sleep. And so once I, once I learned all of that and I thought, well, that, that explains a lot of these performance declines. And it also affects the hormones that regulate appetite and what you actually do with the food that you eat. And so it gets really complex. And when you get down into it, what all sleep it affects. And then a little later on, I kind of put together the cognitive and emotional piece that these guys were complaining about. So if you've ever had the experience of going to bed really confused about something and waking up in the morning and having, you know, this epiphany of, aha, it's just that it's so simple most people will go, well, you know, my brain was just really tired. That's true, possibly. Um, but what's really happening is that that's really when you're learning. <laughs> like, you're, yeah, the learning is all being solidified because you're actually rehearsing everything that you learned that day. Everything that's important to you, you rehearse over and over and over again while you're asleep. And that's what forms the durable memory because your body's now in a place where it's actually restoring things. Without enough rest, your brain can't process all this. Remember the Navy SEALs that Doc Parsley was working with? Because they were using sleep aids, they weren't actually getting the full benefits of sleep. But when you start looking into the sleep drugs, they affect what your body is actually doing during those periods. So, for example, if you use alcohol as a sleep aid, it interferes with stages three and four of sleep. Um, so instead of getting, um, you know, let's just say, five, you know, it's an arbitrary number. I got deep sleep of five. If I use alcohol, I get deep sleep of maybe two. Um, if I use Ambien, I'll get a deep sleep of instead of five, I'll get maybe four, or maybe three and a half. Um, if I use alcohol and those drugs, now maybe I'm only getting a one. And then REM sleep, I lose 80% of that. <laughs> 80% of my REM sleep if I use Ambien. If I'm using alcohol and a Z drug, I'm getting almost no REM sleep. I've sent lots of patients to get sleep studies and they come back with 99% stage two sleep, which is by and large considered transitional sleep. So it's not deep sleep and it's not REM sleep. It's a period that you're transitioning through and there's some benefit to it, but the major benefits of sleep is REM and deep sleep. And they aren't getting either one of those, you know, I've, they're, you know, one or 2% of their entire night is spent in REM and or deep sleep. Um, if you look at somebody who's sleeping on Ambien, their brainwave pattern looks a lot more like somebody who's unconscious, like say, you know, from 
trauma or... There's a reason so many of us ignore the effects of sleep deprivation. Our brains are hardwired to fool us. Those hard-charging CEOs we glorify, the ones who say they thrive on just four hours of sleep, not true. No one actually adapts to function on less sleep. They just adapt to what it feels like. So when people are chronically sleep deprived, they just consider that normal life. Just like when somebody's 40 pounds overweight for 15 years, and then they finally lose that weight and like, oh my gosh, life is so much easier. I feel so much better. I never knew that there was such a huge difference if I did this or, you know, they cleaned up their diet or they started exercising or whatever. It, like that epiphany doesn't come to you until you actually experience it. And the worst the worst thing about trying to motivate people to sleep is that we don't have, as, as individuals, um, or even as a culture, we don't have a great subjective experience of sleep, right? We know what time we got in bed, but we honestly don't know how well we slept or how long we slept. And then there's the way that sleep affects your metabolism. Even if you're paying careful attention to your diet, if you're not sleeping well, your body struggles to keep its blood sugar levels in balance. You've slept eight hours the night before, you had a great night's sleep, and you've been sleeping well on, on average for uh, a month or two before this. Now I take two hours of sleep away from you. Your insulin sensitivity across multiple tissues in your body has decreased by 30%. So that means your fuel partitioning has changed by 30%. And that's your ability to utilize glucose and mobilize glycogen and all this stuff is interfered with by a single night of short sleep they i mean they didn't run the study out for months and months and months but one would have to assume that you know, you know that would be additive and you would you know you'd get progressively worse i was seeing this in the seals i was seeing these young really athletic looking guys that trained <coughs> very not only did they train very hard but they trained very very smart you know because now we had strength and conditioning coaches and exercise physiologists and nutritionists helping them design their program. And, you know, and these guys would have six pack abs and, you know, muscles on their muscles. And they, you know, like they're, you know, physically they look like they're, you know, they're ready to conquer the world. And then I look at their labs and their insulin sensitivity is like pre-diabetic, right? They're just like, you know, they're on the, they're on the verge of somebody that, you know, you know, if it was a 30 pound overweight 50 year old man, I would, I would be counseling on metabolic syndrome and, you know, pre-diabetes and diabetes. But that's obviously not what's going on with these guys. And it was a, it was a sleep issue. And it's not um, just SEALs having these problems. Yeah, I mean, so a few years ago, Outside did a story on a strange phenomenon in the ultra running community where an athlete would dominate the sport for a handful of races and then completely crash, as in, they weren't even competitive anymore. Doctors call it overtraining syndrome, and it's a combination of excessive exercise and inadequate recovery. Even when they're not racing for 24 hours straight, ultra runners are the type of people who deny themselves rest in order to train. Eventually, the body's parasympathetic nervous system, which controls inflammation, it goes haywire. But if you if you look at the ultra marathoner, there's a couple of things going on, right? So they're depriving themselves of sleep. But anytime you deprive yourself of sleep, your body then has to mobilize energy from somewhere else the next day, right? You didn't get all of your anabolic repair. Basically, when you sleep, energy gets stored away in cells for later use. But through overtraining, these stores never have a chance to refill. And from the body's perspective, running is stress which means the release of a number of stress hormones, such as epinephrine and cortisol. 
uh, epinephrine has lots of effects. It you know affects your blood pressure, but it affects your glucose utilization. It um, it affects your neuromuscular tension. It affects concentration and folk, you know, mental focus and clarity and all this other stuff. Um, cortisol causes you to mobilize glycogen. It keeps your blood glucose elevated. Um, and so you're just going to burn through your glycogen stores more quickly. It's a negative so feedback loop. You deny yourself enough sleep. The body runs off stress hormones instead of restored energy, which then puts further stress on the body, releasing more hormones. Even if you're not overtraining, lack of sleep can make your body think that you are. The only time that any, that any animal besides a human sleep deprives itself is when it's being preyed upon, it's being tracked, or if it's starving. You know, their brain is perceiving them as starving. Their their brain is perceiving them as being in a dangerous situation or a stressful situation. And then there's just stress from the impact of running, right? And, the you know, continual muscle contraction and, you know, grinding through the heat and all that other stuff. So, and, you know, in that instance, you know, these are some of the most metabolically broken people on the planet. And, and if, if you look at, say, more of a skilled player, so take like a, a pitcher, right, or a golfer, these people have the exact same performance decline as anybody else. If you're familiar with uh, Robert Sapolsky, he, the author of uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Cancer, uh, one of the leading um, cortisol researchers in the world, um, he calls the prefrontal cortex our simulator. And, and basically what he means by that is that without actually engaging in the activity, we as humans, and as far as we know, we're the only animal on the planet that can do this. We as humans can sit there and think about, you know, there's four or five different options here. I could do this, I could do that, I could do this. And the, and the area of your brain that's the most affected by sleep deprivation is that area, it's the prefrontal cortex. So whether you're a highly skilled player, a strength athlete, or an endurance athlete, your performance is gonna decline. If, and if your job is 100% cognitive, your performance is going to decline. Dr. Parsley uses the concept of sleep debt as a way to understand what we're doing to our bodies. But what no one knows is how far back that debt goes. Can you pay back a massive sleep debt, say, when you picked up in college? We actually don't know the answer to that question. Um, that would just be too hard to study. But what we do know is that the faster you pay you know, the more, the more you can sleep each night, the faster you pay that sleep debt back and the, and the faster you'll see your performance increase. The best metaphor for sleep debt is credit card debt. Um, you know, if you pay the minimum off on your credit card, how long does it take to pay your credit card off? Like 25 years, right? Um, if you pay just, you know, a little bit more, it, you know, it pays off faster. If you pay back twice as much as the minimum, it pays off even faster. So, okay. At this point, maybe you're ready to own up to your debt, but paying it back, it's complicated. Maybe you give yourself an eight-hour window every night, but that doesn't ensure you'll actually get a good night's sleep. Many of us struggle to fall asleep or find ourselves waking up in the middle of the night. If you want to fix that, says Parsley, start treating yourself like you would a toddler. So if you've ever had a, if you've ever had a kid or if you've ever been a kid, mm -hmm. uh, you'll, you'll remember or recognize that you can't take a three-year-old toddler and let them bang on drums, watch television, play with fire trucks, and then pick them up, go put them in their bed, turn off light, and walk out of the room and expect them to go to sleep. Never going to happen, right? There's a protracted sleep ritual. You start winding down their activity. You get them to do more and more calm things. 
you know, you take kind of a cool bath and that lowers body temperature. And that's one of the cues for going to sleep. Um, you know, you get out of there, they put on their onesies, they put some powder on, like everything's like calm and, you know, sedating and, you know, voices are getting softer. And then you put them in bed and you read them stories and then you snuggle them for a while and then you talk to them and then, you know, you, you, you dim the lights and you, you know, slowly extricate yourself from the room and, and then you fall asleep. And the same goes for adults because we've conditioned ourselves to keep playing with the equivalent of fire trucks all the way to the moment we try to go to sleep. We're on our phones, or out at the bar with friends, or, if you're like me, trying to answer a couple of lingering emails. When that's your ritual, sleep is not going to happen. But if you start paying better attention to how your body responds to the environment, sleep is actually pretty simple. We evolved to use the sun as our cue as to when to fall asleep. We, you know, you decrease the blue light in your eyes because the sun's gone down. There's some nerve cells in your eyes that sense that. They just have nothing to do with vision. They're just sensing blue light. And then they signal your brain that the light's gone. And when that blue light's gone, your brain says, okay, it's time for us to start getting ready to go to sleep. But that whole cascade of events takes multiple hours. It takes on average three to three and a half hours from the time the sun goes down until you feel like going to sleep. You know, with electricity, artificial lighting, televisions, you know, screens, all that type of stuff that, that we have, we're, we're continuing to put blue light in our eyes. We're interfering with that process. All there really is to sleep hygiene is decreasing the light and decreasing the stimulation. There are Parsley has a few recommendations. At least an hour before bed, dim the lights in your house and turn off your TV. Avoid stimulating activities or working on stressful projects. And if you're going to stay on your computer, use a program that takes the blue light out of the screen. There's a free one you can download called Flux that automatically kicks in when the sun goes down. And don't take electronics to bed with you, or a snack full of processed carbohydrates and refined sugars. I don't care if you want to be you know, vegan and vegetarian and not eat meat. That's fine, too. You can, you can do that, but... Um, you know, it again, it's all about insulin sensitivity. It's all about um, your fuel partitioning. And it, it can get complex, but usually if you just eat whole foods and you don't overload on white carbohydrates, you'll, you're usually fine. Of course, sometimes there's no avoiding sleep debt. At least that's my situation. My wife is about to have a baby. The credit card is about to get a lot of use. I was curious if Dr. Parsley had any advice. The, what the research bores out is that you lose, uh, couples will lose about six months of sleep in the first two years of their child's life. So you're looking at 25% of your sleep. You get 25% less sleep for two years. That's metabolically damaging. All, that's all there is to it. It's sleep debt. Again, there's nothing unique about this type of sleep debt. It's just sleep debt. What I usually recommend is very unsexy and most people don't really like to do this, but I recommend to the, whatever extent you can that, you know, the parents take turns of getting a good night's sleep. And that might mean that you want to be good onto the basement and you put earplugs in, in a completely dark room and you like the door gets locked and you just aren't involved in any childcare that night. And that whole idea really behind that is that you pay back your sleep debt as quickly as possible. Um, definitely mothers that are staying at home, even if they are stressed out of their mind and they feel like you have a million things to do, nap when your kid is napping, get that sleep too. Nap any other time you can get a nap in. 
keep your stress levels low, and then you really have to focus on the other pillars of health and keep those as optimal as possible, which will make you the most, you know, make you as resilient as possible. And, you know, all of this sleep deprivation will have a less deleterious effect on you if the other pillars of your life are optimized. Uh, apart from that, there's, I mean, there's really nothing you can do other than you're doing your best to get your kid to be a, a good self-soother um, as early as possible, and you're going to lose the least amount of sleep over that. So teaching, you know, teaching your kid to get themselves to sleep, and that's kind of like with the stuffed animals or whoobies or, you know, even pacifiers or whatever, what all those things are about really is just teaching the kid how to comfort him or herself so that you don't have to be involved every time they wake up. So in this busy, career-focused, overconnected world, how likely is it that we'll learn to value sleep the way we do diet and exercise? Will we begin to turn our lights down three hours before bed, leave our electronics in the kitchen, turn off our alarms? Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about that. I wouldn't say... um, I think it's highly unlikely that it becomes the mainstream, but I think like anything else, it could become a pocket for uh, the people who are really uh, interested in self self care and um, health optimization and longevity. Um, and if we can do that to a significant um, amount of the population, I think maybe we move the needle a lot in healthcare and healthcare expenses and um, healthcare design and, at that point, maybe we can um, really start shifting, you know, the entire population's viewpoints on this. Um, but I mean, if you look at how long the nutrition battle's been going on, it'd be kind of naive to think that the sleep battle is going to be any less tumultuous. Well, thank you so much. You gave me a ton of time, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. That's Chris Kyes, talking with Dr. Kirk Parsley. Find him at docparsley.com. This episode of The Outside Podcast was brought to you by The North Face and its new Ventrix jacket, which works when you do to keep you cool. This piece was produced by Chris Kyes, Robbie Carver, and myself, Peter Frick Wright. Thanks to Barack Wright in San Diego for recording the interview. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX, 